0: Welcome everyone to The Elevator Pitch, an ATS Breathe Easy podcast. On this podcast, we talk to the scientists behind innovative new studies to get their elevator pitch, the big picture story behind their research. Importantly, we explore how these studies can change the way we care for patients in the ICU.
1: Dr. Forfaro, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Hi. Thanks for having me on. First of all, I really appreciate it. My name is David Forfaro. I'm a pulmonary and critical care doctor at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at Harvard Medical School in Boston. And I just recently finished my fellowship in pulmonary critical care at Columbia in New York City. Today, we're
0: here to talk about your study, Identifying ARDS Subgroups in Patients with COVID-19. The results from the study were published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, the Blue Journal. Dr. Forfaro, could you give us your elevator pitch for the study?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. So the aim of this study was to look for subphenotypes among patients that had COVID-19 related ARDS. And if we found any subphenotypes, to compare them to known ARDS subphenotypes that have been described in the literature. To do this, we retrospectively looked back at 483 patients who were admitted to Columbia University Associated Hospitals early in the pandemic, this was in March and April of 2020, and employed latent class analysis. Latent class analysis is a minimally biased statistical technique that looks for subgroups in a larger population. And to use the latent glass analysis, we incorporated information from the patient's demographics, their vital signs, their lab results, and their respiratory characteristics. What we ultimately found was that the model indicated that the population was best described as two subgroups rather than one large group or having more groups than two. These subgroups were similar to prior ARDS subphenotypes that in the literature have been described as hypoinflammatory and hyperinflammatory. The hyperinflammatory subphenotype had about 23% of the patients that had worse shock, higher inflammatory markers, and worse organ dysfunction with higher creatinine, higher troponin. This phenotype had significantly worse mortality compared to the hypoinflammatory phenotype. Interestingly, the phenotypes had important other differences. So we looked at SARS CoV 2 viral load, and we measured that by cycle threshold. Uh, from the PCR test they had initially, and in a whole cohort, this predicted mortality. However, when we looked at the subphenotypes, it was only a predictor of mortality in the hypoinflammatory group, not the hyperinflammatory group. Additionally, we saw that corticosteroid use was associated with improved mortality in the hyperinflammatory group, but trended towards harm in the hypoinflammatory subphenotype. Our study did have a couple of important limitations though. It was a single center study. It was early in the pandemic and in the setting of a large surge, uh, which may have limited some of the treatments and impacted the outcomes as we've seen the COVID mortality go down over the course of the pandemic. Additionally, the treatments that were given were not randomized, specifically the corticosteroids, so it's hard to draw firm conclusions from this. However, despite these limitations, our findings indicate that there are two distinct subphenotypes in COVID-19 related ARDS, that they have different biological characteristics that drive the disease severity, and that they may respond differently to treatments, specifically immunomodulatory treatments.
0: It's interesting that these two subgroups that have been validated in general ARDS patients are actually present in this very specific manifestation of ARDS. Could you tell us the similarities and differences between the subphenotypes in COVID compared to the general ARDS subphenotypes?
1: yeah, absolutely. Overall, the groups were very similar. Uh, a lot of the findings that we see in the hypoinflammatory phenotypes that were described looking back at the ARDS trials are seen in our patients as well. more shock, higher higher lactic acidosis we also had some biomarkers available in our study that were not used previously and all of those followed the trends that you would have expected based on the hypo and hyperinflammatory description in general ards so that procalcitonin ferritin were high in the hyperinflammatory low in the hypoinflammatory so all of these things were pretty consistent that being said there were some differences so 17 percent of patients in each of our groups are COVID ARDS group one and group two, uh, were not crossed over when we tried to classify them as hypoinflammatory and hyperinflammatory. So this probably means that there are some slight differences between these subphenotypes. Specifically, it may be that our classes was a a more specific severe subset of the hyperinflammatory phenotype that's been described in ARDS, uh, and not an exact uh, mirroring of how that's described. We also found in our our cohort that there was some difference in age when we described the subphenotypes, but when we described them in the lens of the prior ARDS descriptions, the age was the same between them. So some small differences there. But overall, I'd say that the phenotypes we found were extremely similar and had all the same trends. And it may just be that there were some more uh, specific subgroups we were identifying than the broader umbrella that the prior literature has allowed us to identify. You also found that these
0: two subphenotypes have different relationships between viral load and mortality. And that's uh, an interesting finding because it's not necessarily stating that one group has a different viral load or a higher viral load, but the actual relationship or association with mortality itself is different. So, what does the differential relationship suggest about potential differential host responses to COVID 19?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And so I think all of this for now is, is hypothesis generating because we were looking back retrospectively at the cohort, but, you know, to name specifically what you were saying, we saw that viral load correlated with mortality in the overall cohort. And this relationship even persisted when we controlled for severity disease, say, with SOFA scoring uh, or some prior uh, severity indexes that we use in the ICU. When we looked a little bit closer, it seemed like the real driver of that association was in the hypoinflammatory subphenotype. So for those patients, having a higher viral load early on was associated with poorer outcomes, but not so much in the hyperinflammatory group. Now, some of this may just be because of the size of the hypoinflammatory group was larger. We can't draw tons of conclusions yet, But what it could indicate is that for patients who are hypoinflammatory, the key driver of their pathology is how much virus that they have. And the virus is fueling the pathologic effects. Whereas this hyperinflammatory group, it really may be an immune response that's already been triggered by the virus. And it's less about the viral clearance they're having then, but the pathological immune response that they're having that's driving their mortality. So if these findings were replicated, and we saw prospectively in further data, it really could give us a sign of what's driving the different pathological phenomenon that are leading to mortality in these two subphenotypes.
0: That's interesting, using these unsupervised clustering approaches and actually getting some potential mechanistic insights. And the main focus of the study was, of course, the unsupervised clustering to identify subphenotypes. But the study also evaluated the importance of variables in predicting mortality. Could you tell us about the supervised learning component of the study?
1: Yeah, so there was a machine learning algorithm that was trying to identify the factors that were most related with mortality. And I think the big difference there is that the machine learning portion of it was looking at factors in relation to outcome. So you had a group, you were saying who did poorly, who did well, and which factors were closely associated with that mortality outcome. Our phenotyping using the LCA was agnostic of outcomes. So we did not include how they did in the end when we tried to identify these subgroups. It was just based on their initial characteristics. And so that I think is an important difference. Our phenotyping is really looking for groupings that occur based on the variables we put in and not just how they did later on. Whereas the machine learning is looking backwards trying to say what was associated, uh, what factors were most importantly associated with these outcomes. I think the important thing we found from that too was that while there were a lot of factors that ended up being associated with mortality higher troponin level age uh, a lot of these factors were not distinguishing ones or or key distinguishing ones for our sub phenotypes so i think our sub phenotypes are really capturing a broader overall picture of these groups uh describing a different biological heterogeneity that was even more important in predicting their overall outcome than looking at the individual factors alone that the machine learning algorithm identified.
0: And that's interesting that even though these phenotypes are agnostic to outcomes, they do have prognostic differences. But I guess more important than the prognostic differences is the potential different responses that you saw to corticosteroids. Could you tell us, while this is just hypothesis generating, what you see as the process from discovery to implementation of these subphenotypes in COVID
1: nineteen or
0: ARDS at large,
1: definitely. And I think there are a number of steps. So I think the important thing to take away from our study is that there may be different subgroups that benefit differently from these therapies. But not to just go ahead already and stop giving steroids to people. You know, steroids have been proven in COVID nineteen ARDS in multiple trials to be beneficial. So there's really no equipoise to sort of hold them at this time. But that doesn't mean that there are some people who are not responding as well as others, and we should explore that further to sort of better tailor care in the future. So I think the steps are, I think there are three key ones that would have to happen. First is our results would have to be validated in broader cohorts. Again, this was from one uh, geographic area, it was from one time point early in the pandemic, and standards of care have really changed since then. Survival has improved since then as we've become more familiar with the disease. So you'd have to take do similar process that we did and then identify these subphenotypes in other groups of COVID-19 ARDS. If that occurred, and we think there's a high likelihood they would be identified just based on the similarities to subphenotypes described in non-COVID-19 ARDS, but if that was validated, then the next step would be to look back at some of these randomized control trials with the lens of these subphenotypes and see if there was differential response to treatments in those trials. In our study, it was retrospective, so the corticosteroid use was uh, retrospective and could have been subject to bias uh, from maybe the sickest patients receiving steroids uh, and the less sick patients not. So, these randomized trials would provide a better lens for looking at the differential responses. And then, if that were to be the case as well, then you could try to prospectively look at if patients were classified into these different subphenotypes early on in advance could you track that they had different outcomes? And there'd have to be a big discussion if it would be ethical to withhold steroids from some of them while you were exploring that, but you could at least, even if you were giving them steroids, look at it prospectively and see if their outcomes were different and if you could predict who would have a better response. So I think those three steps of validation, reanalysis of RCTs or subgroup analysis of RCTs, and then prospective studies would be the way to move forward.
0: That's great. I mean, I think that's a lot of great points. I mean, if you find something in a certain cohort, important to validate in the broader cohort and then see if there's treatment differences in a randomized uh, control uh, fashion using data from these trials so that's really great can you tell us about your plans for the future
1: yeah definitely so the position i have taken now after fellowship uh, i'm really focusing on critical care and uh, ecmo for respi- vv ecmo for respiratory failure as well as doing some pulmonary hypertension uh, clinical care I'm continuing to do sort of epidemiologic research in both of those areas, and not quite the same subphenotyping in LCA we're doing here. I'll leave that to the expert hands of uh, Pratik and Dr. And Sinha and Dr. Caffey, who is great to work with, uh, but continuing to do research on these types of patient populations to try to optimize our clinical care. And then in addition, I do some medical education work. I actually just launched my own podcast uh, called Pulm Peeps. It's a med ed podcast for people interested in pulmonary uh, and just enjoying working on some of those projects as well. Dr. Porfaro, thank you for sharing your insights on the Elevator Pitch podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to be here. Thank
0: you all for listening to the Elevator Pitch. Join us next time for the big picture behind the latest critical care study.